Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Biblical World podcast. Biblical World is a podcast focused on the history, archaeology, cultures, and geography of the Bible. And it's hosted by Chris McKinney, Mary Buck, Kyle Keimer, Lynn Coick, Oliver Hersey, and Mark Jansen. Thanks so much for listening to this new podcast. We encourage you to subscribe wherever you're listening and to give us a rating or review on iTunes or on another platform. Uh, For this episode, we're in part two of our look at the Archaeology of Passion Week. As with the first week, there are visuals that go along with this episode. If you want to look at them, there's a PDF link on our website, onscript.study forward slash biblical world. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this show. He produces this podcast along with Onscript and gives so much of his time. And we really appreciate you, Ed, and all that you do for us. So uh, without further ado, enjoy the episode. Welcome back to On Script, the Biblical World podcast. I am your host, Chris McKinney, and today I am joined by my co-host, uh, Dr. Kyle Keimer, Hello. and we are going to con- there's <laughs> Kyle, uh, and we are going to continue our series of the archaeology of Passion Week. Uh, we we did already a series uh, uh, the first of this series. Uh, that should be on the the website already. And if you haven't heard that, you should go back and and maybe listen to the first couple days of Passion Week. Um, And we're going to continue with the second half of Passion Week as we make our way through Second Temple Jerusalem and its many archaeological sites that that bear a lot of uh, of weight on what's happening in the the Gospels during this all-important week in in Jesus' life. Great, Chris. Yeah, it's exciting to be back and to kind of finish up the, our little journey here through the the Passion Week. And the first thing we wanted to, to do is to kind of recontextualize us again before we jump right back in uh, to the, the second half of the week. And one of the, the better things I think that we can look at, are, um, archaeologically speaking, are some of the, the pools that we've discovered in, in Jerusalem, uh, in particular the Pool of Siloam and the Bethesda Pool. And these have only really come to light in, um, well, I should say, they've been known for a long time and partially exposed a long time ago, but recent excavations going back to 2005 really changed our understanding of the Siloam Pool in particular because up until that time, you know, we, we knew there was a, a pool of Siloam, and, but it was the Byzantine pool. And when you come out of Hezekiah's tunnel, you enter into this fairly small pool-esque thing. And, and scholars generally thought that, oh, well, you know, this, we know this is Byzantine, but presumably the earlier one is underneath of this. Um, it wasn't until 2005 when as fortune would have it, I guess, a a pipe exploded and they had to go in and fix it. And they discovered, oh no, actually there is a much larger structure just to the southeast of it um, at a lower elevation. And as they were uh, opening up and excavating it, they found out there was a huge, huge pool. Uh, I don't know the the actual dimensions uh, off the top of my head, but at least 50 meters, 50 yards by an unknown width. We don't know exactly. And this actually dates to the Second Temple period, so to the days of Jesus. So here, all of a sudden, we have the Pool of Siloam from the days of Jesus. 
and it's massive. And it's just one of the many pools that we actually know from Jerusalem in this time period because water is such an important thing. And you need these pools for a number of reasons, both ritual, also for for watering the surrounding terraces or, or um, crops perhaps. And of course you need water to drink. And the Gihon Spring just doesn't put out enough water for the estimated population in Jerusalem in that time period. And so we know that aqueducts were built from the region of Bethlehem and brought water to Jerusalem, two different aqueducts, one kind of headed to the temple and the other one headed uh, elsewhere in the city. And, and then a lot of this water was stored up in these these pools. And so now we have the Pool of Siloam uh, known archaeologically and dated uh, archaeologically and it's part of the whole City of David tour. So if you go to Israel today, you go to Jerusalem, you can actually walk into, wander through the Pool of Siloam from the, the days of Jesus and then wander up the monumental staircase that we talked about last time. And one of the, the interesting things or one of the big discussions about not only this pool, but perhaps also the Pool of Bethesda and, and some of the other pools that that are mentioned in Josephus are what are their purpose? What are their function? And, you know, is this a place that people will come and drink water to gather water or, or not? Well, most likely, at least it seems to me, and Chris, you can, if you know other sources or disagree, you know, let me know. But it seems that most people will say, no, no, these are probably large ritual baths um, that people are going to for ritual purification and cleansing. And they're getting actual drinking water. Perhaps elsewhere, I'm, I'm guessing you don't mix the ritual water with the drinking water. So Yeah, yeah. That's what the way I've always heard it. I mean, it's kind of, uh, to some extent, unclear. When you think of the Pool of Siloam, it is massive. So uh, you know, if you if you're thirsty enough, I imagine that uh, you don't mind too much. But that's my understanding as well. Is that the the pool of Siloam is mostly for ritual purification? Although uh, I think there are some um, some later rabbinic sources that talk about the bringing of water from the pool of Siloam up to the temple on on Sukkot. I just had a reflection on uh, your your just kind of the, the description of the discovery because I was a, actually an undergrad student in Jerusalem, uh, actually just to the west of Jerusalem, when this was found. And so I, I just really, really remember um, the the excitement. And actually, my very first excavation experience, which was digging through one of um, one of Vincent and Montague Parker's holes that they had dug in the city of David. Uh, it was it was right in that time frame, and so this was such a uh, such an exciting thing when it was discovered. Um, and it just also kind of goes to show you of the um, how archaeology works. You never know. Uh, people excavated in this area for for many many years, and then a broken sewage pipe leads to the discovery of of one of the greatest, uh, uh, the greatest finds, uh, greatest discoveries in Jerusalem. I, I, would, I did want to back up just a minute uh, and say one thing about for our audience about the 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 transition of water in Jerusalem because the 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 Gihon Spring, which is on the east side of the city of David, was it, was the main water source in the Old Testament, but in the days of Hezekiah, the water is actually brought through the city of David to the Pool of Siloam. Now, this is uh, talked about in Isaiah, it's talked about in Chronicles, and we don't actually know uh, what or where exactly the Pool of Hezekiah was. This pool is, is called in Hebrew the Pool of Shelach, which means 
the sent waters, or the, 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 or the waters are sent to the pool. This is mentioned in, in, the, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 15. And presumably, the iron to uh, B and C, as well as Persian and so on, pool uh, that Hezekiah initially constructed is somehow below or around the pool of Siloam as we see it today. What we see today when we visit the southernmost part of the, of the city of David uh, are two pools, one from the Byzantine period um, that has been essentially visible and never lost for um, uh, since since Jerusalem was uh, uh, was re- was reoccupied and, and rebuilt in the second century A.D. and in, in, in the Byzantine period, and then the recent one that was uncovered uh, in 2005 and has undergone undergone massive excavations. But it's important to remember that uh, the water source of the Pool of Siloam is actually from the Gihon, uh, so it essentially is bringing the the spring waters. And filling up this, uh, filling up this massive pool, which hopefully one day. And I've heard rumors; uh, it's always up, kind of in the air when you visit these steps. Will the Greek Orthodox Church uh, allow someone to remove the rest of the debris of the Pool of Siloam? And and because uh, what's really fascinating about this particular pool is that unlike what we have at the Pools of Bethesda, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, it doesn't seem like there were lots of Byzantine remains and Crusader remains built on top of it. It seems like it is more or less in pristine uh, condition, much as it would have been in 70 AD when most of the lower city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus and as described by Josephus. And so this is a really fantastic uh, area, and it's only been made... Uh, all the more interesting with new excavations along the Step Street um, that has been excavated in recent years by Roni Reich and Ellie Shukroon and Joe Ziel and, and, and others. Uh, so it's, a, it, it's, it's really a fantastic, a fantastic area. Now, one last thing. Um, the, it, this is also mentioned in Luke because it talks about the, the Tower of Siloam, which fell in this area. Now, we don't know exactly where this tower was, but it has to be in and around this this pool, um, indicating that right around the time Jesus was in in, in the city and Pontius Pilate was the, the governor, there's ongoing uh, building projects in and around this pool. And that's also been shown archaeologically as the street, uh, which we alluded to last time, is seems to have been mostly built in the in the days of Pontius Pilate. Yeah, yeah, great, great points, Chris, and to, to clarify too that where the water is coming from and the whole kind of water system of Jerusalem is um, an endlessly fascinating in my in my mind. And and yes, you, the, the 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 rumors too about the Greek patriarch letting letting further excavation. Uh, we can only hope that that will will manifest as some. But yes, exactly. Inshallah, that would be that would be incredible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, so one of the, one thing I just wanted to point out, and then we'll we'll jump over to um, the moving on a little bit to the Bethesda pools are the the steps, and you see um, if you if you um, have ever been there, or if you go to the video version of this and see some of the images, um, you have kind of offset steps in the same way that you have them at the southern end of the temple platform and leading up to the temple mount, and so you've got a wide kind of landing and then three narrower steps, wide landing, three narrower steps. And I've heard some different different takes on this. And one that I particularly like, whether or not it's actually fully right, I don't know, is that there's a, a ritual element to, to this construction, um, and particularly going up to the temple platform, because if you have the same, you know, size of steps every way, you, you know, 
potentially run the risk of just being able to wander right up to the temple platform. But, you know, when we approach God or in those days, when you approach God, there's a very, there's an intentionality about that. And perhaps this was factored into the architecture as well, that the, the steps are offset in this way to actually break your, your cadence and to slow you down. And perhaps, you know, we have to think too, that maybe the reciting hymns or Psalms as they go up also, there's some, some elements that we just can't get to based on our sources today, but I think it's it's fun and, and useful to, to consider some of these things as well, because oftentimes, you know, we look at the archaeology, but there's a whole lot more going on than we necessarily are able to kind of draw out of it. Right, and what's so interesting about the fact that you bring up these steps is we actually know of a biblical person who's blind, who's walking down these very steps and likely had to have them memorized uh, without the without sight to be able to reach this pool, which is actually why this pool is so famous in the New Testament, because it's this pool in John 9, where the blind man, the blind man from birth, who Jesus meets, probably on the step street that has recently been excavated, and then sends him to this very pool, uh, the pool of Siloam. And so you can imagine they, these steps, uh, as, as Kyle pointed out, have this f- perhaps functional element in, in worship, probably also some type of element for uh, seating large numbers of people in and around them, uh, but also trying to, uh, trying to wrap your head around uh, being, being blind from birth and then going to this pool and then coming out seeing in this uh, fantastic story that we have in John 9, uh, which is just, uh, according to you know, John's chronology, a couple months before we have the, the events of Passion Week. And just as a side note, this is, I think that episode is one of my kids' favorite because they, they like to re- uh, reproduce it and go out and spit in the mud and make mud and rub it around. So, you know, <laughs> hey, kids are learning the Bible and it's, it's important. So that's good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Well, so if we jump to the pool of Bethesda or the pools of Bethesda, because there's actually two of them, right? We're going to jump to the opposite end of, of Jerusalem. So uh, the pool of Siloam was at the, the southern end, which if you know the topography of Jerusalem is the, the lower part. And literally you're, you're about 100 meters, 100 yards lower in elevation than you are at the temple platform. The pools of Bethesda then are just to the north of the temple platform at an even slightly higher elevation. So everything kind of slopes from north to south and, and then it's broken up by the valleys. And we get this this interesting description of the pools of Bethesda, also in the Gospel of John, but in chapter 5 this time. And it calls them the sheep pool, um, called in Aramaic Bethesda. And it ta- gives us some specific details. It says there are five colonnades, and that this is a place where many disabled people used to come and lie and hope to get better. And, you know, why is this an interesting fact, and what, what what can we draw out of this archaeologically? Well, there's actually a lot that we um, can glean from the archaeology that really adds a layer to what the text is is telling us. And so, if you go to um, Jerusalem today, you can actually go and see a portion of these these pools, and they were they were excavated partially. Um, I don't remember back in the um, the early 20th century, if I remember correctly. And they are, again, massive. I mean, probably 100 meters, 100 yards wide, um, each one. And they're divided by a a solid wall that has a sluice gate between the two of them. So as water is brought in or rain fills them up, you're able then to kind of 
manage the amount of water you have between the two pools. And I've seen some studies that, that talk about this in a religious context, that they're parallel in some regard to a, a mikveh and the kind of overflow pool so that, um, you know, when the water of the mikveh becomes too low, you can bring in extra pool from a reservoir without having to manipulate it and thereby making, you know, the pool ritually impure. And you're not, you, you know, you're still allowing living water, so to speak, to, to fill the pool back up. And so there might be something to that. The one thing, though, that is really particularly interesting, if we continue with the story in John, is that you know Jesus goes there, and he sees the guy who's been, been laying there for, what, 38 years, and he asks him, oh, do you want to be made well? And the guy says, well, you know, every time the water's stirred up, no one's there to put me in the pool. And as I'm making my way down, somebody always gets in the pool ahead of me. And then, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus obviously just heals him, right? But it's these, these additional details that are interesting. Well, why are people rushing to get in the pool? What is causing it to bubble up? And why is there an idea that the, this is going to make them well in some way? Well, we do know that later on, just to kind of jump ahead for a moment, that they're in the like an early Roman um, period in the second century, late, you know, first century, early second century AD, that uh, a Roman Asclepion is constructed over this area. And Asclepius, right, the Roman god of, of healing, health, right, there is something about this area that is known outside of kind of Near Eastern context that even the Romans kind of adopt and convert into their, their worldview. And so where does this, this idea of uh, this ritual purification for this location come from? And, you know, Archaeologically speaking, one thing, one clue we might have that could lead us towards an answer for this, it seems that these two pools not only connected to each other, but actually also connected to what's called the Struthion Pool, which is just north of the Antonia Fortress, which itself is at the northwestern corner of the temple platform. And this, this Struthion Pool kind of... Um, is, provides water then for the, the fortress and for, for other needs. And we know that then there is also a connection between these and that it seems that whenever that pool got too low, they could low, raise a second sluice gate and funnel the water one, one way or, or the other. And that when this happened, it actually churned the water up. So, so in either case, one of the sluice gates is opening. It's causing water from one of these other pools to flow into what essentially we can call the the middle pool or the, the southern pool of Bethesda, and it churns the water up. Now, on top of this, there's a really interesting thing. If you go into the basement of the uh, monastery there, or the um, the church of, um, my brain just stopped, St. Catherine? My... Uh, yeah, the, well, the, the pools of Bethesda, and you have the um, the... the, the... What is it called? I, I'm blanking on it as well, but, but yeah, the, the, yeah. the Crusader the, Church of St. Anne. It's a Crusader Church. Yeah, St. Anne's. St. Anne's. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, not, not Catherine. Yeah. St. Anne's, um, so you go, which is uh, one of the best preserved Crusader era churches that, that we have. And so you go into the basement and you can see underneath the, the bedrock and it it's, has a lot of iron. For whatever reason, there's a pocket of iron rich Cenomanian um, limestone in this, this region here. And Iron-rich stone often has a red hue. You can see it. You can actually touch it in the in the basement there. And the only thing that, or I should say, archaeologically speaking, I, I forget if there's a mention in Josephus. It talks about the water, the water having a reddish hue, and it's be, probably because of this iron-rich. Um, bedrock that's there. And so perhaps it's this, not only the combination of this mystifying bubbling of water that's happening 
unbeknownst to most people, but also the fact that it's churning up and changing color that leads to the idea that, hey, this is some sort of special, special water. And if I get into it, I get to have that special healing property of some sort. Right. No, I think it's, I think it's a really very intriguing example of how archaeology, um, as well as paying careful attention to historical sources, including the Bible, can really help um, make sense of make sense of a text. And actually, one of the very interesting things about this is that there's a kind of parenthetical note in that section in John, in John 5, where it says, the reason why they did this is because when the waters are stirred, they believe that an angel touches the waters, and the first person who gets in is healed. Now, that section doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts, uh, but even though it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts, it is very consistent with what we think was going on in terms of explaining why this this man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years would have wanted to go in the water. It fits with what Josephus alludes to. It fits with what we see as Kyle described, the archaeology of the, of the two pools together, as well as the Struthion pool. And so it's a way of, of really getting at um, not not what we would call canon scripture, but a verse that that actually is a kind of early commentary, uh, because as people were reading John five in the early uh, centuries of of the church, they were thinking just like we are, like. <laughs> Why does he think jumping in the pool is going to give him the ability to to swim or walk again? And uh, so that's what's what's really kind of exciting about it. And just as an aside to this, uh, John has really two famous uh, passages that are like this. This is a smaller one that I think is is confirmed. There's another one in, in, in at the beginning of uh, of John eight, end of, of John seven. It's the famous story of. Uh, of the woman caught in adultery and they pick up stones. And that may be the same kind of thing where it wasn't an original part of the story, but it was an early story about uh, about Jesus and an early understanding that gets brought into um, the original composition of the book of John, which is really interesting if you consider how even the stories um, uh, and the gospels were received and how they're trying to make sense of these. So it's just a uh, one of those things that is fascinating to relate archaeology, text, textual criticism, history, and how try to put all those together together to get at you know, what this what the story actually means. Yeah, thanks, Chris. That's great. I think that definitely clarifies these some, some things for me there. I, I wasn't actually, I don't remember that, the passage about the angels, so thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, you have to, you have to read the King James, you know, the King James English to be able to, to, be able to get it. Uh, but it's, it's there, right there in the KJV, go to 1611. Well, so hopefully, you know, I, I mean, again, these, these pools are just fascinating. I think it gives us such a great context for understanding, like you said, kind of pulling everything together. And it also, you know, brings this back to the whole idea of tradition. And there are good traditions that go back to probably the likely historical events. And then there are other traditions, which, you know, develop for what, one reason or another. And, you know, that kind of leads us into our next point of discussion, which is the... Kyle, before, yeah. before you go on, sorry, can, can, I, can I just say one, one last thing? Because I think our readers, or our listeners will really find it interesting. I, I think that it's also interesting that these are two, the, the two miracles that we have in relationship to Jesus in, in the city, in Jerusalem. Most of his other miracles happen elsewhere. Uh, of course, the resurrection would be a, a pretty big miracle, but uh, the, the sign miracles, let's say, and uh, a, lot, a number of scholars have pointed out 
that uh, the, both of these are associated with pools. Both of these are associated with the healing of a paralyzed person, a crippled person, and a blind person. And if you uh, think of David when he conquers the city in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we have this cryptic thing where David, um, where, where the Jebusites, they say, we can keep you out. Even the, the blind and the lame can keep you out. And we have it said afterwards that the blind and the lame won't be allowed in King David's court because of this. It could be that, the, that, that John is, is playing on that, um, as well as perhaps Jesus is trying to fulfill that role of, uh, whereas David keeps out the blind and the lame, Jesus heals the blind and the lame. And of course, that connects to other passages in Isaiah uh, when 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 the when John the Baptist sends his disciples and they and they ask um, they they ask uh, is, is Jesus the Messiah or is we should we look for another and they say the blind and the lame are healed so it's it's clearly a profile of what Messiah is supposed to do in Isaiah but also perhaps something that we could connect geographically to the Davidic role as as the Messiah uh, as Jesus is outdoing David in this in this way. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that's great, and, and you know, I think that that brings us back to what we had talked about in the first half of this in the last podcast. Is you know, Jesus says things at you know very specific things at very specific places, and you know, he knows the scriptures, and he's he's making a very clear message, and yeah, it's delving in, you know, for us is delving into that and drawing these connections and saying, oh wow, yeah, he's. You know, if, had he said that elsewhere or done a different miracle there, it wouldn't have the same punch. And so, yeah, that's a great point to bring out. Yeah, I, I, I totally think so. I mean, in, in, forgive me, but I, like when, when I think about this, like, you know, these stories happen over the course of thousands of years, penned by multiple authors. Uh, but it's that it's the thing you allude to is is it's one thing to say that uh, a later author just pulled up and picked up on these threads and say, Jesus has to be like this. But I, I think that there is good evidence that based upon the magnitude of these Old Testament parallels that we have Jesus pulling on, whether it's Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, there's so many, um, that there's really something to him as a, as a figure understanding the Old Testament scriptures and then fulfilling them, uh, which means not just doing what they did, but going above and beyond. And the point I always like to make is some of my favorite literature is uh, is Tolkien's um, World of Middle Earth and how he builds all these typologies uh, early on that that Aragorn and so on can fulfill and go bigger. But that's one guy writing over a lifetime, and then his son picking up, and it's amazing literature. But what we have in the Bible is thousands of years of multiple authors contributing to this and then all coming together in the form of of, of Christ in, in terms of fulfillment. And so to me, that aspect is one of the most, one of the things that just really speaks to me as, as being supernatural in the sense that it's not just influenced only by authors who are doing whatever they want, but it's bringing together and all pointing to this common story that is uh, made better by the person of, of, of Christ and, and, and all the wonderful things that he does over the course of the Gospels. Yeah, here, here. Good point. Well, with that, I don't, I don't know how to follow that. It was such a good, good synthesis of pulling together, and I, I agree completely. So let's switch channels completely and talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> um, but um, no, yeah, well, anyway, we're following on. Um, 
Yeah, so we switch over and, you know, so we basically moved on. So if we jump back to our Passion Week, and we were back um, Wednesday, Thursday, again, we had that discussion about time and how days are reckoned in uh, the previous episode. And again, pinpointing precisely when it is actually comes down to a couple different questions of of when the Passover is being observed, who is observing it. And we we get clues from rabbinic sources that actually you can, you depending on which kind of um, calendar you're following, but also which group you are a part of, you can actually practice or observe the, the Passover on a different different night. And so that's all a bigger question. We're not going to delve into that per se, but all to say that you know, there's, there's many things that we can't pin down, you know, particularly with the archaeology. But a couple of things that I do want to highlight with the archaeology are the Garden of Gethsemane and the, the upper room, this you know, place of the Last Supper. So again, you, you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to these places and you might wonder, well, do these have any reality or any historical basis in, in the traditions then, or is it just, you know, they developed later on, which we know is the case with some of them. And, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane is, is an interesting one because you go, you see the olive trees there, you see how wide they are. And if, you, if you're not a um, horticulturist and you, you don't grow your own olive trees, one way to tell how old they are is how wide the trunk is, the diameter. The bigger it is, the older it is. And it very well could be that some of the very biggest trees there are a couple thousand years old. It's not to say that this is exactly where Jesus is praying. We can't pin that down per se. But archaeologically speaking, we know that the Church of All Nations is built over top of a Byzantine church. So at least by the, the fourth century, fifth century, there's a tradition that, you know, this is the, the location of the so-called Garden of Gethsemane. And in just a, a few months ago, um, a in a salvage excavation, they discovered a Mikveh, right in this vicinity as well, as they were gonna they're gonna do some renovations for for tourism reasons. And the, the fact that you have a mikveh right there with um, next to, for all intents and purposes, we can tell it's an ancient garden or a place where olive trees are grown, right? Uh, and this is the name, right? Gethsemane, Gashemin, right? The press of the oil, the oil pressing place. And so, you know, it makes sense that you have olive trees growing there, that you're going to gather them and press the oil and, and use that. But the fact that you have a mikveh right, raises some interesting things. And this is, I, I think it was one of your friends, uh, um, Amit Dagan, or... Um, David Amit, I forget uh, who, who was excavating, but he made the point that, you know, you've got a mikveh there, and if this oil is going to be used for any ritual purpose, there's going to be uh, a level of, of ritual purity for those working in the, the olive groves that, that needs to be practiced. And so it makes perfect sense that you would have uh, a mikveh right in this location, um, right across from the temple on the other side of, of the Kidron Valley. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that to me, there's about a list of about 20 different things that over the last um, year and a half, since we've not been able to get, get to Israel, that have been uncovered that I just can't wait to go and, and check out for myself. But trying to make sense of the this discovery, it seems to me like this is actually lower than the Church of All Nations, uh, that it was like below the below that street that goes out in front of it. Um, and from what I understand, they also, in addition to the first century mikvah, which, as you alluded to, is very, very important and interesting to this whole thing, I think they also found um, part of, a, of another church, which would also be from the Byzantine period. And so you, so you have uh, two Byzantine churches, one directly underneath the Church of All Nations, which was built in the 1920s, which is a fantastic church, but then now probably an earlier Byzantine church, um, I believe dated to the fourth or the fifth century, um, and then connect that with the Greek Orthodox tradition, 
which is just a bit up the, the road, but still in the same area of the garden where they connect it with a cave tradition. Uh, all of the early tradition we have, as well as the uh, early Roman evidence now with the mikvah, points to this area being the location of the Garden of Gethsemane, which, to, if we think back to your, your points last time, Kyle, you know, the, the, the route of the triumphal entry would have gone through this area. Um, you know, descending the Mount of Olives, coming to Jerusalem, the route uh, going over from Bethany. Bethany is just right up the hill. Now, it's a tall hill. Uh, I'm sure that you've walked it a few times. Um, and it's, it's a very tall hill. And some of my uh, people I've, you know, toured with over the years, they're maybe cursing under their breath as they climb to the top. Uh, but, but still, it's within the uh, relative proximity to where Bethany was. And so it's just, if we think about the place of Gethsemane, I, I, I think that it's an area that Jesus would have known well. I mean, one of the things that uh, I've always found to be really interesting is how does Judas know where to go to the Garden of Gethsemane? How does he, how does he know that? I mean, he, and we learn from Mark that probably he went to the last place he left Jesus in the upper room, and then he just knows to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. The reason why that probably is is because it was a place they went to often. Um, and we have even this illusion in, I think it's in Mark, of the, of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, but f- at least from my perspective, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane with its wonderful churches and the, its wonderful olive trees uh, seems to be a good tradition that fits with uh, what the, both the, um, the Synoptic Gospels and John indicate that, that would have been the place that Jesus attended often, but then, of course, on that uh, fateful night. Of, of Thursday of Passion Week. Yeah, and just a, just a little fun story to highlight again how, how steep this hill is, just because why not? I'll throw it in. I was driving a van up the, the Mount of Olives one year, uh, a nine-person van, up a road that apparently wasn't the right road, and it got too steep. The van couldn't make it. The wheels just started spinning and started sliding backwards <laughs> down the road and kind of gave up and, and then tried again and gunned it and eventually got, got up where all the giant buses could make it nice and easily. So, you know, it's, it's fun to go off-roading, you know, when you're in Israel and to try things. I did had a similar story in Nazareth, but we'll get to that another time. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that's, save that for next one. The early, you know, the early life of Jesus uh, and, and off-roading. This or this yeah. case was on-roading, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah. yeah, so we've got the Garden of Gethsemane, and so, again, there's nothing per se archaeologically that's going to nail it down precisely, but, yeah, all this, the weight of all the evidence is growing, and it gives us a good sense that we're in a really good vicinity of where where these events of the Passion Week took place. Now, when we jump to the upper room, right, if you've ever been there, or if you see pictures or want to see the video of this, um, you know, you can you can look and you wonder, and you go up into the, the cenacle, and you say, ah, wow, this is the upper room. It has such wonderful medieval arches. I didn't realize they used those in the Herodian period. Well, yeah, yeah they, they didn't, right? So the, the modern structure that is identified as the upper room is a, a completely medieval Crusader period building. Built over, however, portions of an earlier building, and you know there's there's a big debate about the the historicity or the, the tradition about this location because ultimately, right, the tomb of David is in the same kind of same building on the next side over, and it's connected here. And is this in any way a good tradition, or is it one of those other traditions that we've mentioned? Well, you know, depending on who you talk to, you're going to get two different two different views. And um, and Chris, you've you've written about this and, and talked a lot about this, um, but we we know some. Um, early sources refer to an early 
early church of, of God or the uh, kind of church of the apostles on Mount Zion in this general vicinity. And why is there a church there? And well, the, the thinking goes that presumably it's, it's connected to the fact that this is where they kind of the early church started and it's connected to the, the room of the last supper. Now there's, you know, no smoking gun to say that this is the case, and there's probably dis- dissent to to argue against it. But maybe, maybe you, Chris, want to talk a little bit about this because since you have you know written about this and in talking about in the bigger perception or the bigger picture, also tying into Pentecost and later on. Yeah, no, I, I think that you know all all of what you said, I would agree with, and in terms of this this building which goes by a bunch of different names I, I think the easiest name to remember it by is the church of the upper room or the church of the last supper uh its name um it's also known as the the cynical the conical uh, these different names that are given to it um it is a uh, in some ways a, a kind of picture of what the holy land is because the building itself um if we if we move back from the latest to the earliest it at its latest state where it is now it is a its basement is a uh, holy site to uh, to Jews uh, because of it being the the area of the uh, traditional area of, of the tomb of David but that itself is made more important by it being the closest proximity to the western wall between 1948 and 1967 this is literally the border between the nation of Jordan and the nation of Israel for 20 years or so between 1948 and 1967. And so even though it was certainly an important tradition before, it's even maximized by that uh, political dynamic. But if you look at specific parts of the artifact, uh, parts of the building, I mean, you can see objects that indicate that it was a church. You can see a Islamic mikrab, which is the the area that points you towards Mecca to worship. Um, It's been suggested, as Kyle indicated, that it was uh, the the, the early church, the church of the the apostles. Um, And it's been suggested by such uh, scholars as Bargill Pixner that perhaps it was actually a first century synagogue that was then later turned into a church uh, so there's all kinds of um, interesting suggestions about the site, and many of these are very early. I would say that when it comes to the cynical, I don't want to be too cynical uh, about uh, about the <laughs> early one, biblical <laughs> connections. <laughs> like, see what it did there? Uh, uh, but there are, um, there's, as you said, there's no smoking gun. Uh, there's no smoking gun. Recently, there's been some some imaging work done. Um, about the site that, that seems to indicate that it goes back to the 4th century AD. And so I'm more of the opinion that we can almost certainly identify it with the Church of the Upper Room, uh, which also becomes the, the, the area of Pentecost. But going before that becomes a much more difficult task. And just to, to give one example of, um, of, a, of a traditional source, we have a very interesting uh, source called the Anonymous Pilgrim of Bordeaux, uh, and he lists all the different places that he left uh, Bordeaux and then went all the way to uh, the Holy Land and back, and even lists how long it took him to get from one place to the next by, um, by how, how long it took him by, by riding on horse. And he describes Mount Zion wrongly, because this isn't Mount Zion, but it's, it illustrates how in this period it was considered to be Mount Zion, and he talks about how there were still 
uh, seven synagogues that could be seen, all of them destroyed as a result of Hadrian except one. And he suggests, this is Pinksner, suggests that with that information that the one synagogue that survived could be connected with the upper room that is mentioned in the Gospels. Um, all that to say, <laughs> those connections are, are really tenuous at best, but there's a lot of smoke around this building. Um, and I highly recommend visiting it, seeing its walls, which again, as Kyle said, the 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 the, the, the building itself in its present state is crusader with later, uh, with later additions, but the lower walls of it are actually Herodian, probably from the Temple Mount itself, which were brought there to be used after its destruction in 70 AD, sometime perhaps in the, in the second or third century, uh, for the building of either this church or even some earlier structure. And so the, the main real response is we don't know exactly the whole history, it really needs to be excavated, but it's really unlikely that will happen because of its uh, connection with uh, so many of these religious traditions. Lastly, um, before I move on, um, it's certainly not the tomb of David. Uh, that's, a, that's a late tradition, but as long as we're talking about Pentecost, uh, it really reminds me of what Peter says that's really interesting. He says, uh, when he's making the case that Jesus is really the Messiah, and he's using the the Psalms where he says, David said that I will not see corruption. Um, and he says that David's tomb, uh, David has died and his tomb is with us until today. And essentially using almost like a, a geographic PowerPoint to point out uh, where it is in the city that David's tomb is. Um, now, we, we believe that most likely it's somewhere in the city of David, but we really would have, we really wish that that Peter would have said it's in the lower city, right by the Pool of Siloam or somewhere else. We really wish, to me, the, the location of the second temple and perhaps the actual tomb of David is still one of those uh, great discoveries waiting to be happened in, uh, in the city of David somewhere in Jerusalem. Uh, and yet until today, it has not been located. Uh, maybe it was destroyed in antiquity and we'll never find it. But that would be one if, if, we could, if we could make a request to the IAA to be able to find something, that would be the one that I would really hope to find. All right. Well, so moving on then with our, our events, right? So, all right, so Jesus has been arrested. So well, he had, his, had the Last Supper, went out, he's been arrested now. And then he's brought before, uh, you know, the kind of pre, uh, previous high priest and then the high priest and the portion of the Sanhedrin. And again, some of the, some of the details aren't as explicit as we might like to, to, to have them in our textual sources which makes it really challenging archaeologically to kind of map on some of the next movements that are going to take place in this, this narrative. And you know, it comes down to, okay, where where is the high priest living? Where would the Sanhedrin meet? Where would they meet if it's a super late evening meeting? They're not gonna, are they going to be up on the temple platform in the, the Great Basilica? Probably not. Are they going to be somewhere else? Well, you know, again, theories abound, but let's let's start with some excavations that have been done near um, in the Western Wall Plaza, Wilson's Arch area, and the so-called Western Wall tunnels. And in in this area, you have some um, large buildings from the Herodian period. Um, one of which I forget the the fancy name, the the Pilastered Hall or the the Great Hall, something like that. Um, and it's been proposed, at least you know, one of the proposals, is that this would have been a, an 
a meeting place for the Sanhedrin when they're not all gathered together, kind of like a you know subcommittee in Congress or something. They're not necessarily meeting in the the whole you know congressional building, but they're going to meet someplace else. And the the level of the quality of the frescoes in this building is such that you know it's clearly a, a significant and important building, and so somebody significant or somebody that is of significance is going to be using it. Take it what you you have. You know, we don't have, a, again, no smoking gun with this, except that we have a nice building that dates to the Herodian period. Perhaps it could be where Jesus is brought in his kind of what we might call the Jewish trial of Jesus before he goes off to the to the Romans. Now, where would the high priest be? Well, because it, it says he, he's taken to his, his house. And you have this traditional house of Caiaphas up on the western hill in the, the Jewish quarter today in the old city. And, you know... It, you know, some have proposed that actually this is this is the actual house where Jesus is brought, and you've got it's a mansion. It's huge and it's well preserved. It was just completely destroyed, um, or burned and preserved in the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in, in AD seventy, and so it's it's really well preserved. You can go and visit the visit this house today. Again, well well built. You know, frescoes, courtyard, mikveot, multiple mikveot inside the house as well. So again, it, it lends credence that somebody in there is really concerned with ritual purity for, for whatever, for one reason or the other. But again, there's no smoking gun. Is this actually the, the real house of Caiaphas or of his, his father-in-law? Or is this, you know, is this where Jesus would have been brought? You know, you know, we don't know precisely, but again, we, we have these traditions arising. We have good archaeological images of what what the buildings may have looked like that Jesus was brought to and or the context in which he could have been, you know, being tried in this way. Right. Yeah, I think I think it's some some, some good points there. Like we have, like in my opinion, we, we have just so many visuals to be able to reconstruct what these homes were like. You, I think you're alluding to the, the the wool or the Herodian quarter, where you have um, so many mikvah. Oh, wonderful! Uh, even even kind of like a communal um, meeting hall, and then right next to it's a courtyard. I mean, so whether it's the place or not, you have in the story, like in Luke's version, where it talks about how Jesus looks and he sees Peter in the courtyard, and it, just as he's going inside, and really this immediacy to it. So it's a great place to imagine. Uh, where where it would have where it would have happened, and so what's great archaeologically is we can actually recover buildings, whether or not they specifically relate to the house of Annas and the house of Caiaphas, and um, and where Jesus was presented um, on the temple. It's it's hard to say with certainty. I think I'll just say this: like in terms of the chronology, the it's fairly there's a, as Kyle indicated there's there's some difficulty, but Jesus is essentially kept overnight in the houses of Annas and or Caiaphas. There is a kind of trial or examination in the night, uh, which may relate, uh, if, if we're connecting it with a, an archaeological area, the Herodian quarter or the wool, which is in today's Jewish quarter, um, at least that gives you some visuals for that. In the morning, before he's taken to to uh, Pontius Pilate, he says that he's essentially in Luke that he's presented on the temple. And so this could have been directly for the temple. This could have been perhaps in the room that Kyle alluded to. This could have been in the Royal Stoa, uh, which is the biggest and probably one of the main structures used for judicial decisions, these types of things. Most likely the area uh, where Jesus also earlier in the week uh, drove the money changers out. Uh, this massive uh, three-story at least pillared structure, and you can actually still see some of the um, ionic capitals 
in and around the, the Temple Mount where this would have happened. And so what I think is really most crucial is not to connect it with any particular building. And there's a variety of different uh, traditions that we could allude to with Caiaphas and so on. But to connect it with, we actually have the buildings, the frescoes, the objects from this because just as Jesus indicated uh, in the Gospels, uh, Jerusalem would be destroyed and that destruction actually happens in 70 AD, some 40 years after this. Now one last thing about uh, Caiaphas and Annas, we actually most likely have the location of both of their tombs. Uh, We have the tomb of the high priest. Now we don't have the name Annas, but Josephus tells us that it is essentially on the edge of the Hinnom Valley, and a massive um, tomb was was located and excavated there in the early, uh, I think in the in the in the 90s and, and published in, in the early 2000s, and then right around that same time frame, uh, south of there in what's called the area of the of the promenade, the Haas Promenade, uh, another tomb was excavated uh, with the name Caiaphas the priest. So we actually have these. Uh, characters showing up in, again, Josephus and archaeologically. Uh, so whether or not we can find their actual house, uh, we found where their l- final house was uh, in terms of their tombs. Uh, so again, all of that, just super fascinating uh, to be able to reconstruct the events with the, the actual characters involved. Yeah. Yeah. And Chris, I think you made a, a good point. You know, it's so much about uh, you're kind of building a library of impressions, which is, you know, a phrase that, you know, a quote from one of my, my teachers, you know, John Monson told me that and his dad, Jim Monson, before that, it's all about, you know, building a library of impressions. And, you know, this is the one area that archaeology is so helpful because it gives us that sense that we can then connect back to the, the past. But then when we read the stories, it opens our our perception in a whole new way that we we understand and can contextualize it a bit better. We can relate potentially to the authors in in a new way because you know we we have this shared visual reality that we can we can experience. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and what's so great about that is to me it's fairly obvious that if we think uh, like something like Luke, like the stories about Luke, Luke wasn't there. We know he wasn't because in the book of Acts he becomes a believer at the behest of Paul on you know on on his journeys and yet he knows this information he knows about the the uh, the tower of Siloam we can talk about John who who knows that the brook of Kidron uh, is the area east of Jerusalem he has to cross over and so there's just this reality that the New Testament authors have that's not a construct based upon something that's a hundred years afterwards, but it's it's an eyewitness type testimony, or in the case of Luke, perhaps uh, talking with an eyewitness. And I love that line, uh, what I like to call, uh, instead of Turabian, I call it Lucan, a a citation in, in Luke 2, where he cites his source about Mary. And it says, you know, Mary treasured up all these things in his heart. What is he doing? He's telling you, I got this information from Mary. Uh, and so th- there's this reality, as, as Kyle alluded to, that we can, archaeologically speaking, through the topography of Jerusalem and the finds in Jerusalem, be able to see and touch. It doesn't mean everything that uh, every archaeology, archaeological um, uh, uh, theory fits exactly with the story, but it allows us to be able to uh, think about and reconstruct that that world um, that these events happened in, that the gospel writers are reflecting on. 
Yeah. And speaking of places that we can we can touch, we'll t- turn to Herod's Palace, which unfortunately we can't because it's mostly been raised to the ground in antiquity and excavations that were were done by the uh, British back in the 60s, Kathleen Kenyon, and uh, potentially some additional ones going to take place soon. Um, you know, I think they already started, oh, actually. Did they? Okay. Uh, I've seen some, some, you're talking about in the Armenian quarter, yes. uh-huh. there's been some, I've seen some pictures that they're beginning to excavate the um, the, the yeah, parking lot. Yeah, maybe we can so. report on that in the future and um, say a little bit more about Herod's Palace and what I'm going to be able to say about it right now, archaeologically speaking, because you know, what what has been clear, at least up to this point, archaeologically, is that, as I mentioned, it was kind of raised later on and we're left with largely the foundations. And so the reconstruction of Herod's Palace um is largely based on Josephus's description of it, and we know that apparently there's kind of two two wings, and which basically would fill up a large portion of the western hill um, in the today the most the Armenian quarter, basically just inside Jaffa Gate and just to the south of it, um, all the way to the southern bend of the the old city wall. Practically, would be the area of Herod's palace of one the left western side of it, and then the eastern side would be on the other side of the main road running through Armenia the Armenian quarter. So it's a massive, massive compound, according to the text. Of course, with a living city like Jerusalem, it's, it's tough to dig underneath houses. And so again, you know, through the happenstance of, of later construction and or, you know, building today, we either have no access to it or it has been removed for one reason. And so, um, you know, we can't say a whole lot about it archaeologically, but the point of even bringing up Herod's palace is because, well, where is, where, where's the next step of Jesus's journey after his, his kind of Jewish trial, if you will? Well, he gets shipped off to Pontius Pilate. And the question is, where is Pontius Pilate? Well, if you've ever been to Jerusalem and you've, um, you've gone on the pilgrim road, you are familiar with the Via Dolorosa. And that would assume that Pontius Pilate is in the Antonia Fortress, which is again at the northwestern corner of the temple platform. And then it's from there that he Jesus is um, has his trial, is, is, is beaten, and then sent out to um, Calvary to be crucified. And so this is the, the course that the traditional Via Dolorosa follows. Problem is that the... Via Dolorosa and the association of Pontius Pilate is residing in the Antonia Fortress is is a medieval creation. So the Via Dolorosa, tradition-wise, goes back to Crusader period. And the connection of Pontius Pilate living in the Antonia Fortress is probably based on a misunderstanding of, or, or just a misconception of where a Roman official would be. And is he going to be slumming it with the soldiers in the barracks, or is he going to be living living large like the other kings. And there's many reasons to, to basically say that he would be over in, in the palace residing there. This is the place where the, the procurators or the, the um, uh, proconsuls will, will be staying and any dignitary there, it, which is different from um, the other palace of Herod, or I should say Herod Agrippa, when he comes, probably stays in the old Hasmonean palace, which is its own special entity for him. And so the, you know, You've got different buildings where different kind of dignitaries will be staying. Antonine Fortress doesn't fit the, fit the bill for any dignitary to be staying there. And so when we kind of start to think about the tradition of where Jesus is being tried, 
again, if you've gone to Jerusalem, if you've walked the Via Della Rosa, I don't want to, you know, minimize any kind of religious experience that you've had. It's all to say that this tradition just doesn't go back very far. And actually what we know from the archaeology is that it probably isn't the location. In fact, the archaeology gives us greater um, confidence that, in fact, it's it's not the right location. We should be looking elsewhere for where Jesus is tried, where he's, uh, where the praetorium is, and then ultimately the route to Calvary. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I I, I know that the the it, it's a it's a it's a long held and beloved tradition to some extent, and in some sense, uh, where as we'll see, uh, where it actually happens is not the primary point. But we're again trying to recover uh, these sights and sounds, and I would just simply add that the earliest possible um, connection with the Antonia Fortress has to be a hundred years after the death of Jesus, because the street system that exists in the old city of today is a product of, uh, of Hadrian, uh, who conquered the city in 135 AD. So if you're, if you're thinking Jesus died in 33, that's, that's good, that's about 100 years after. And the street that ends in uh, Lionsgate and connects with the main street that goes from Damascus Gate to the Temple Mount, um, even though that's a, a modern street that you can walk on today, is a very, very ancient one. It goes back to when Hadrian uh, and then his successors after him reconstructed the city and named it Aelia Capitolina. And we have uh, what's called the, uh, the Cardo uh, uh, Valentus, uh, which connects these streets. And we actually um, have a picture of this from the 6th century uh, AD on the Medaba map. We can actually see where these streets would have gone. Uh, which is to say that this could be a, a very old in terms of its practice, but still not quite old enough, because uh, we can actually reconstruct what first century Jerusalem would have looked like. And just to say a couple things about uh, what the Antonia Fortress is, uh, the Antonia Fortress is, by its very token, a fortress, but it's also a tower. It's a massive fortification that was used for two main purposes. One, to house the, the troops for use on the Temple Mount, which is probably reflected in uh, the book of Acts when Paul is in prison, or when he is, there's a riot on the temple, and he is taken by a, uh, a Roman soldier, and right before he's going to, uh, uh, to whip him, he, he appeals and says that I'm a Roman citizen. Well, how does he get to there so quickly? Well, it's likely because the Antonia Fortress was essentially a police station for the Temple Mount that overlooked the Temple Mount. So it has a, an internal uh, fortification purpose in, in uh, crowd control for the Temple Mount, but also has an external uh, point uh, as it's at one of, the most, um, uh, one of the most difficult places to defend on Jerusalem on its north side. Um, and, and that lines up actually with uh, what we're going to talk about next, with, with, with the Herodian uh, palace, because Right north of the Herodian Palace, there are a series of, of three massive towers that if you're standing on the one that still exists today, you can look directly across and see where the Antonia Fortress would have been located. It's this northern part of the city that is very difficult to defend, that throughout its history, whoever was occupying Jerusalem had to do something about. And what the Romans did uh, already with uh, Herod early on, by virtue of its name, 
Antonia Fortress. It's Mark Antony. So it has to be built before Antony and Cleopatra, uh, which would be 31 BC. Uh, they, had, they had sought to build these massive fortresses north of the city to, uh, to protect it. And so just as Kyle indicated, it's unlikely that you would have Pontius Pilate, whose main seat was in the beautiful city of Caesarea and the promontory palace with a pool built on the waters, I mean, almost like an ancient cruise ship. Um, he, he's not coming to slum it up with the, 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 in the barracks. He's most likely going to be in uh, the, the main palace of the ruler of Judea and Samaria. Uh, which would have been, as, as Kyle indicated, and many scholars have suggested in, since its discovery, uh, the Herodian Palace, which is just inside uh, Jaffa Gate. Now, as he also indicated, we, we don't have a lot of it, but there is pieces. There are pieces of it in the north. There's a reservoir, which is inside the Tower of, of David. You can also, as I indicated, walk up to the, uh, the top of the tower. Uh, it gives you the best view of Jerusalem anywhere. This was originally built by Herod the Great. So you can get a sense of its purpose in, uh, in Jerusalem uh, to, and, and connect it with this with this event, which I think is very likely. Yeah, yeah, good points. And I'll just add one thing too about with uh, Hadrianic roads is, and you, and this is connected to I think the tradition of the Via Dolorosa, and it comes also back to the Gospel of John, where he gives us again very specific details that aren't in some of the the Synoptic Gospels, and he talks about the Lithostratos and the Gabbatha, this kind of high place. Well, in early explorations underneath one of the the, the convent um, just north of of what was the um, temple platform, right? It, they found the foundations. I mean, basically, there's a convent built on the foundations of the Antonia Fortress. And they found these huge paving stones and said, well, these must be the Lithostratos. These are the, the giant stones because we don't know of any other giant stones like this from the, the time period. So therefore, you know, it feeds into, and now granted this discovery is late 19th century. So it's it's far later than the tradition that already, already had the Via Dolorosa there, but it, it adds to it. And it, it starts to show how you take the archeology span and factor in the text. Right? And again, this is always a, a process. The more we're discovering, we always need to reevaluate re and reevaluate. And it really wasn't until the excavations along the western wall of uh, the old city and in the 70s that probably we have the first evidence that, oh, actually, we need to reevaluate this association of the Lithostratos and Gabbatha being with the Antonia Fortress and consider it perhaps being over here by, by Herod's palace. Because um, just on the western wall of the old city of Jerusalem, if you ever wander around the walls, sh shortly before it turns to the east at the kind of southwest corner, you can see uh, two walls kind of standing in a grassy area. Um, and there's a, a few steps that lead up, and then you have the giant Ottoman wall kind of in front of you. And, you know, it looks like, you know, fragments of archaeology. But, but when you actually look at the excavations, and these are done by, oh gosh, my brain's frozen right now, thinking of, of his name, another Israeli scholar who also worked in the area and on Mount Zion. Uh, it'll come to me eventually. Um, but they excavated along here, and underneath the, the grassy area that you would see today is another large paved area. And as you move 
from the steps up onto this paved area and move toward the city wall itself, you actually see the foundations of what was a monumental gateway there. And so we know that there was an entrance connecting this region to you know, allow you access into the city going back you know, archaeologically to the, the Roman period. And with the, the excavations here along the western wall and the dating to, to this first century, Again, the details of the Gospel of John were factored in, and Shimon Gibson, I think, is is right. He's he's the one who kind of has built this up. Is that not only is Gabatha here, or I'm sorry, uh, the lithostratos, the, the the giant paving stones, but as you kind of turn to your left and the the stone goes up, and you have this natural bedrock rise that has been kind of fashioned and 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 formed. That this is a high place, and that's what Gabatha basically means is the the high place. So it's a a place where Herod, I'm uh, sorry, uh, where Pilate would be dispensing justice. It's also close to where he would be, you know, presumably if he's in the palace, which again, uh, everyone would seem to agree with at this point in time. We also know from the description of Josephus that next to the palace was the Praetorium, and so, or next to Herod's residence was the Praetorium. And so they're all in close vicinity. Again, the, the topographic details, the literary details, just don't really fit with the Antonia Fortress for that being the location of Jesus's Roman trial. But here along the Western Wall, all of a sudden things really start to uh, gain a new light. And it's a stronger case, at least in my mind, that, that you have here now the, the location that's being referred to in the text. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good point. I, I remember reading uh, Shimon Gibson's book. I think it's called the The Last Days of Jesus, where he makes this this case. And we can put a link in the description. It's a good book, and and, and I think he makes a a very compelling case for this. I would just simply add that as we think about even the early traditions um, of people coming and trying to identify these places. Uh, they are of value and they're worth looking at. But even a uh, hundred years, two hundred years after, the landscape of Jerusalem was greatly altered uh, due to ongoing uh, building activity. And it's only really through archaeology, which can date things fairly accurately, that you can be able to, um, to to get at these types of questions. And in the area that we're talking about, um, what's so interesting about this is that you just have a a nexus of of a place after place after place being built in this area, all associated with fortifications, because it's precisely at the point where along the Western Hill, you have a, um, a the, the, the Western Hill giving out to the, 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 the Hinnom Valley. And so in the time of Hezekiah, we have the construction of a massive wall and the constru- in the days of of the Hasmoneans, and you can even point to specific stones right next to uh, this area. You can point to, in the second century, the building of the first wall. Herod builds onto it, and then so on and so forth, all the way till you get to the Crusader walls, Crusader Ottoman walls that we have until today. And even to add more to this, there's been excavations uh, just north of this area and what's called the Kishle by Amit Raim, or Re'em, I think is how you pronounce his last name, who has, uh, who has demonstrated that it's precisely these walls that we have, uh, and some of them definitely built by, by Herod the Great. And so it shows you that at least in this part of the city, the, the topographic situation never really changed. And so with this um, 
not really a discovery. It's a discovery, but it's more of a of discovering something that was already kind of there, open for anyone to see on the outer face of the wall. Uh, we're able to put a lot of these historical and archaeological pieces together in a way that I think is is really compelling if we consider this as the place where Pontius Pilate brings Jesus away from the crowds and has this one-on-one conversation uh, with with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, great points, Chris. And, you know, even speaking of, of tradition a, a bit more, and I, I know I've heard this somewhere, and maybe you can correct me if, if I'm confusing it, but the Greek Orthodox tradition of their kind of so-called Via Dolorosa, they don't go from the Antonia Fortress. This is a, a Roman Catholic, Latin, Jerusalem kind of route. The Greek Orthodox actually come from this location and they take a different route understanding. And so, so there's a, a shared or a, a memory of some sort that, that connects this general, the, the Western Hill, let's just say, because I don't remember the specific details, let's just say even the Western Hill, that they're coming from there as opposed to the Northwestern corner of the temple platform and, and, and charting their route to um, Calvary in a different way. Well, so we know from the text then that Jesus is is tried there and goes into the praetorium, is is beaten, and then comes out, and then ultimately, once the the, the verdict is given, that he's then led to um, the place of the skull. He's called Golgotha, right, or what we later call Calvary, and right, which is which is really to to set the stage for the final entry of this of this series. Uh, I think we're, all, we're almost out of time. Oh, yes. I guess we've been talking for a good while. <laughs> it's been great. Uh, but why don't we save our last bullet uh, for, uh, for, the, for the last part of Passion Week? And just to kind of set that up, I would say that even though we would both disagree with the starting point of the Via Dolorosa, I think we would both agree that it ends in the right place. Um, it ends in the right place, and uh, not only do uh, the events of the crucifixion uh, happen there, but also the, the location of, of Golgotha, which we'll talk about later, and the tomb seems to be quite close, which uh, for many people when they visit it, they often say, well, you know, how come they're so close? Well, we'll talk about next time, what do the historical sources actually say? What has been uncovered uh, at the, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? How does that relate to the the garden tomb, uh, which uh, we've just went through Easter and uh, the amount of uh, garden tomb pictures on my Facebook feed uh, was I wasn't say alarming, but it's always nice when you're, when you're when you're talking about the resurrection. But uh, it's probably not the spot, uh, almost definitely not. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about those uh, as we go into the third and likely final part of this series you know kyle we yeah. have to have three. That, that's a good that's a good number it's gotta be a three yeah. part it can't be a two part <laughs> it, it's it's a good number uh if it was good enough for jesus <laughs> it should be good enough for us uh so we'll we'll pick it up uh, uh next time and we talk about the death burial uh resurrection and maybe even a little bit of the ascension uh in part three of our series of the archaeology of passion week You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.